0: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at EveryWoman'sMarathon.com.
1: I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time, in part of that decade, like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian. Doris Kearns Goodwin, joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. It's a very uh, uh, special episode of the Longform Podcast. We have two firsts on this episode. The first first is that it's our first live episode. Evan Ratliff, you were just in Romania and you talked to Chris Jones.
1: Yeah, Chris Jones and I were in Romania for a conference on storytelling that was put on by a magazine there, which is an incredible magazine full of incredible people. I have to say uh, called Decado Revista. It's a Romanian magazine. It's like the Romanian New Yorker or something. Um, and they agreed to organize a live taping of the podcast. It was taped at this kind of like socially conscious design firm called Friends for Friends Foundation. And the people were amazing. They were so into it and I expected like five people and uh they wouldn't give a shit but actually like they was
2: a big audience and we had beer and it was really fun our second first is that uh we have a sponsor this is a uh a major uh coup for me i've had an uneasy relationship with sponsors uh since my youth softball days um When there was a team in our league that was sponsored by Big Daddy's Fish House. (laughs) And I was not on that team. I was on Winans Construction. So I've always wanted a cool sponsor like Tiny Letter. Tinyletter.com what is tiny letter tiny letter is the best way to send email newsletters it's simple it's easy it's from the people from Mailchimp, who we are all fans of i have a t-shirt of theirs that i acquired at south by southwest and i wear it with great pride uh tiny letter is as good as everything else they make and i don't know exactly what that means but uh (laughs) really excited to um have them sponsoring this podcast yeah thanks tiny letter and thanks um To the wonderful people who brought evan and chris jones to romania and let them record this podcast i think you guys are going to really enjoy it
1: so let's get started i also want to thank uh our hosts for letting us use this space for christian and everyone for uh setting this up for us kind of at the last minute so that's much appreciated and also chris for doing it so uh, Christian introduced in a little bit, and you guys probably are familiar with his work, but uh, he is. Are you now a writer at large for Esquire? Writer at large for Esquire, longtime writer for Esquire. Um, also writes for Grantland, writes the back page for ESPN, the magazine, and uh, is the winner of two National Magazine Awards, both for feature writing, I think. Correct. Um, and maybe we'll talk about those stories. But first, I wanted to talk about your most recent story um, about Teller. What is Teller's first name that he doesn't use anymore? Raymond. Raymond? But he is, he's
3: legally just Teller. So He has dropped the uh, names.
1: Is, is he hard to get to? <sighs> yeah, because he's silent. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing I thought when I read that story was, uh, what, what's it like the first time you hear him say anything?
3: That was a weird story because... Um, So for those of you who don't know, Teller is this American magician, and he sued a Dutch magician for stealing his signature trick. And so I pitched that story, and I said to my editor, I don't know what the story is, I just think there's something there. And I actually met Teller for the first time, he was doing a show in Windsor, Ontario, I live outside Toronto, so this was pretty close. And I think for maybe the first time in my career, I went to just talk to a guy just to see if there was a story. Um,
1: just to talking about the lawsuit. So you'd seen news about the lawsuit. I'd seen
3: news about the lawsuit, and that's all I'd
1: seen. And
3: just had an inkling there was something there. My editor wasn't sure there was something there. I wasn't sure there was something there. Um, I'd never heard Tyler speak. It's pretty rare that he speaks publicly. And we met in a casino restaurant, and he spoke for basically two hours, and he was this wonderful speaker, beautiful speaker, poetic, and thoughtful, and mesmerizing, and you know, I've basically fell in love with them. And um, and I called my editor and I said, we gotta do a story on this. I'm st- I still don't know what the story is, uh, but there's a story here somewhere.
1: Teller's amazing. So Teller's let's awesome.
3: Let's do a story on Teller being awesome. and uh, And that's how it started. And then I just kinda got lost down the rabbit hole of magic. It was a weird
1: few weeks. So at what point in the process do you know You've got a story, is that? And typically, do you hit a moment where you say, "I've got this story," or is it something where you you gather string on it for months and months, and then you sit down and then you say, "Okay, what is this that I've got?"
3: I've always found that the best stories. So I don't know. In ten years, of Esquire, I've probably written fifty or sixty stories, and there are probably five or six that I really like. And those ones all had a moment when I was reporting them, and this sounds awful, but I call it a chick ching moment, like a cash register opening, like where you just go, OK.
1: Like an old cash register. Like an old cash register a, with a
3: big drawer that hits you. They in don't the head make yet. them like that No, anymore. not like, like these microphones. Um, and they, that moment is sort of, when you get that, that's when you know you've sort of got a real one.
1: So was sounds, there that? Was there that? Is this one of the ones that you rate?
3: I really like this story, uh, and I I hope that doesn't sound whatever. I like this I li- story. I
1: can say I really
3: like this story. Thank you very much. Um, I like it because I like it because it's about a guy who is super passionate about something, and I think I've always thought there's something beautiful about people who really care about something, and I think it's particularly neat when they care about something that's strange. Um, and those stories are, like, I usually love those stories. Like, the, the Price is Right story is about a guy who's just obsessed with patterns and how things work. And in this case, Teller is just a guy who just, he loves magic the way other people love, you know, I don't know what, baseball or something. He, magic is just the thing that caught him. And, and I'm trying to think, there, I mean, there was definitely, there was all sorts of moments where I thought it was going to be a good story. But I'll, there was one moment, so the trick is this trick called the Shadows, where there's a rose in a vase, and Teller uses a knife and he carves the shadow, and the rose falls apart. And then he accidentally cuts himself and he holds up his hand, and from the shadow of his hand, this trickle of blood runs down the thing and he smears. It's, it's a very simple, beautiful trick. And I'd watched, the, I'd been to several of their shows, and um, and the, and the more I saw shadows, the more I got obsessed with it and the more I, how more beautiful it became to me. And there was one show where Teller must have found out beforehand where I was sitting. And when he smeared the blood down the screen, he looked right at me. And the feeling that I had was just like this full body. Like I just, I, I choked up. I was just like, this is the most beautiful. Like it was just this very strange beautiful moment. And for me, I was like, if I can convey that in a story, then the story will work.
1: Um, let's go all the way back to how you started your career. You started a newspaper, right? I did. Where was your sort of journalistic instinct, ethics, all of those things? Where did they come from? Did they come from reading? Did they come from working in the newspaper and having someone on top of you? How, how did you sort of get started?
3: I have no... Uh, this is always very hard because... I always like to give advice that's practical, and I have no practical advice about this because I did not deserve my job. I did not know what I was doing. I got really lucky. Your first job? My first job. Well, or my Esquire job. But my first job at the paper, it's funny, we went out the other night, my old boss retired the other night, literally three or four days ago we all went out and we were talking about it. and. This is a complicated story, but I, was, I got a job in a new paper in Toronto called the National Post and before it started, a bunch of us who had been hired by the editor and who were called Ken's kids because we were a bunch of young guys who had been hired by this guy named Ken for no good reason. We're all sitting in this room going, why are you here, I don't know. <laughs> I did my master's in urban planning. Uh, I specialized in hockey arena design. I can draw many trees from an overhead perspective. Um,
1: Around a hockey rink. Around a hockey rink.
3: I think think trees are important. Um, And I applied for that job on a whim, basically, because a headmaster of mine said I should. And I got the job, and guys from sports and guys from news were calling me. And I thought they were fighting over me. And I found out years later they were fighting over who had to take me no one wanted me but, but Ken kept saying someone's got to take him and the sports guy's going I don't want him and the news guy's like I don't want him and finally I got hired in sports but didn't count in the hiring quota I was like uh, the guy in sports like I'll take him but he doesn't count as a guy so I was like the invisible man um, and that's how I started and I just learned on that job which is insane like I should not have learned how to be a journalist writing for a national newspaper that's an error someone made a mistake
1: <laughs> well, we'll see if we can get that corrected. You know, it, <laughs> might it might be too late. might be totally to too late now to resolve that. Um, but I but, had
3: great editors who taught
1: me. What did you think you learned from from those editors? I mean, what... Obviously, you learned sort of like reporting and writing, but you know, I think everyone encounters an editor that sort of, at some point, kind of like changes their their view of, of their work.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that was, So Graham Parley was my editor at the National Post, and he... After he got over the fact that he didn't want me, uh, gradually warmed up to me. And what happened was, you know, all the guys he wanted had beats. There was the hockey guy and the basketball guy, and the, and I just I I decided I would be the boxing guy because no one had boxing. And I said to Graham, I want to be the boxing guy, and Graham was like, you know, no. Uh, but then he sent me to a fight, and I that was my. That's where my career changes. I went to my first fight. It was Roy Jones Jr. against a guy named Otis Grant, the Canadian guy, and he just let me write two thousand words about that fight. And that was the first long story I got in there. And and that's when it went. And that to be honest, that's when writing hooked me. Just that adrenaline rush and trying to write the best story you can and finding out stuff. Um for me it's always been less about the writing and more about the reporting. I love reporting. I love trying to find out information i love secrets i love mysteries i love talking to people i love opening doors i shouldn't open and uh and that that's when i got
1: caught so then you're but you're still working in a newspaper where probably two thousand word stories are a little bit few and far between you would would think
3: except it was a brand new newspaper with no ads um so so (laughs) so i routinely wrote two or three thousand word stories got to
1: fill those pages got to fill those pages
3: Got to fill those pages, yeah.
1: So I think people who know you or have followed your career probably know the story of how you ended up at Esquire, but it's too good to not have you tell again. Um, so how did you end up at Esquire?
3: I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I decided that David Granger, who is Esquire, who still is Esquire's editor-in-chief, would really like to meet me.
1: Why um, Why? Why Esquire? Um, I mean, could it oh, have been GQ or The New Yorker? Because of
3: Charlie Pierce. Uh, so I started reading Esquire when I was in university, and Charlie Pierce wrote the sports column. And for me, no offense to music, uh magical Mike Sager in the back of the room, but Charlie was the guy who I was like, that is what you can do with this. You know, it's like until you see how far you can take writing, you don't really know what's possible. And Charlie's stuff was where I went. I mean, you can really... Blow people's minds if you write well enough, and because he blew my mind, and and so that's where that started. Esquire became the place I wanted to go.
1: So you decide, David Granger probably wants to meet you because probably why wouldn't uh, he want to meet a
3: twenty-four-year-old urban planner from Toronto? Um.
1: He monitors all. Oh, he's <laughs> he's my, that's my understanding.
3: Watching. Yeah, yeah. It's like the MacArthur Genius Grant. All of a sudden, you get a phone call. And it's Granger, and he says, "Hey, do you want a job at Esquire?" Um, <laughs> I just walked in there one day, and um, I was in I was in New York for work for the po- for the paper, and um, and a security guard said, "Do you have an appointment?" And I said, "I do not." And he said, "Then no." And that was really it. I sort of argued a bit and explained who I was, and and that didn't work. Uh, and I was leaving, and a janitor stopped me, and the janitor said, "Do you want a job
1: at Esquire?" And I. This is the point where the fact checker says, I need the phone number of this janitor. Of this
3: janitor. This is all totally, totally true. And what I'm most ashamed about is what I said next, which was not as a janitor. Uh, Which was an awful thing. I should not have said that.
1: But it was he the was first a, thing. Also, he was the janitor probably for the whole building, not just for Esquire. This is when
3: Esquire was in an old three, like a three or four story building. Uh, okay. They weren't in the they great big, in, like, tar- big, tower big tower
1: that they're no, this
3: was like a little building. But yeah, so he might have been. And it's like the Breakfast Club, how the janitor like knows everything. I think that jan so he said, It's not Granger you want to talk to, it's this guy, Andy Ward. He's the deputy editor. You said sports. He loves sports. He's a Yankees fan. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like. So I went back to the security guard and I said, Can I talk to Andy Ward? And he said, he said you can call him. And Andy answered, and I said, hey, I'm Chris. I'm a writer from Toronto, and I'd really love to meet you and just say hey and show you my stuff. And he's like, when are you going to be in New York? And I was like, I'm in your lobby. <laughs> uh, and he, uh, he, um, he said he had a meeting. it could come back in a couple hours. So I went out, and I got donuts, because that's what Canadians do. They bring, they bring baked goods. It's a symbol of respect. Um, so I brought a dozen donuts for the janitor, and I brought a dozen donuts for Andy. And he met me. We talked for about 45 minutes. And um, I gave him some stuff I'd written. Again, because I, I cringe as I think back. Because I made him read it in front of me. Out he's loud? Like, he's, no. He's like, I'm going to read this later. And I was like, no, can you read it now, I actually? Uh, because I just wanted to know. I, this made sense at the time. I wanted to know if it was possible. I'm, a big, I'm not a believer in false hope. I think false hope is cruel. And I think... I think something like American Idol, where you see those people, is there a Romanian idol? Does that exist? Similar. Similar. And you see those people who are terrible, and they've been taught their whole life that they're good. I think that's awful. I think it's somewhere their mom or someone should have said, the silly, this is not your thing. You are not, you're not a singer. Um, and so I wanted Andy to say, was there a chance? And he, was, he said something like, we wouldn't have as many one-sentence paragraphs, but it's not bad. I was like, okay, that's all I need. Do
1: you think that he, knowing him later, would he have said... I mean, I can't imagine having a young writer sitting there in front of you and you reading his newspaper stories, and then you say, I'm sorry, kid, this... <laughs> this oh, is, Andy would have. No, I, well, I believe garbage. Andy would have.
3: Uh, Andy, Andy's edit. So the, when we started, when I finally started at Esquire and Andy was my editor, uh, we'd get our galleys, so our first draft on type would come by fax. And I still remember <laughs> one fax arriving, you know, slowly coming out of the machine. And all I saw was, this is shit. As it came in, I was like, I was like, okay, this is, this is not going so well. So I believe that Andy would have told me that was
1: shit, I think. I'm not 100% sure. See, the problem with, the, the, the wonderful thing about this story is it's sort of like the same kind of like pluck that you would need to like get into Teller's house or get into <laughs> someone else's house. Like as a reporter you're using uh, to, to kind of, like, get in the door at Esquire. The horrible thing about this story is... Everything that, else? No, it's that uh, there's probably, you know, hundreds of writers who are thinking about showing up at the Esquire offices and calling up, like... The- I have
3: heard that donut sales went through the roof <laughs> <laughs> among journalists. No, see, the problem now is that Esquire is now in this giant glass skyscraper. You wouldn't get near the place now. And it was just one of those fluky... I happened to go in when Esquire had this little building that they were waiting while they were waiting for the skyscraper to be built and it just it's very hard to talk about like to explain it because it's like absolutely I was super lucky if that janitor doesn't stop me I walked out of that building and who knows what happens next
1: but it seems like the tra- trajectory of the story is that you would have come back. You would have emailed them. You would have. I probably would have
3: I probably, or I would have gone, or I would have made an ass of myself in some other fashion. But it
1: taking your pants off outside. Take, exactly, you know, exactly.
3: But it. But I don't like to give all the credit to luck because I did walk in the building. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I hope this doesn't sound like being an asshole, but I, I got lucky when I got to the National Post, and I got lucky when I got to Esquire. But I like to think I retroactively earned the luck. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I shouldn't have gotten those jobs, but hopefully I've proved since that I should have gotten that job. And it's like, as awful as that sounds, that's how I try to work it out in my head. Because I don't like to believe that everything's just fate.
1: No, but I mean, any, I mean, I actually got the chance to interview Tracy Kidder one time, and Tracy Kidder, who's, you know, one of the best sort of nonfiction writers of the 20th century, 21st century, he said to me, any writer who, tells, who doesn't cite luck as a reason why they are where they are, professional writer, is full of shit. And I think that's probably true. I mean, there's all just like many breaks that people get along the way, but of course there's yeah. that cliche, sort of like taking advantage of those. Which, yeah. I mean, so then, all right, so Andy Ward says, all right, yeah, okay, maybe there's a chance, and then at some point along the way you get an assignment, and then you gotta actually do it. Yeah, which was awful. It was, I
3: made a terrible career error, I quit the paper. Before I had the job with Esquire, I never talked to Andy again after that. And I quit the paper, because I just wasn't liking it anymore. And I ended up broke. Uh, I was in a car with my now wife, my girlfriend at the time. We were in Flagstaff, Arizona when we ran out of money. And we were just traveling, and again, one of those Things, Andy emails me when I, we were in Flagstaff and says, Do you want to try out for this job? And what he told me was, Charlie had left, my idol had left. And what Andy had said is that 10, 10 people were going to write a story. Best story wins. So you can imagine how much I shit my pants. That's cruel. Yeah, because I wanted that job so much, and I was broke. And I'm one of 10 at this point. Though it's pretty good odds, but it's not. Awesome it's just ten percent, right? So so I wrote that I wrote a story about Barry Zito, a baseball picture, and I wrote it and I wrote it and I wrote it and Andy kept sending it back and he's like, nope, newspaper, nope, newspaper, nope, newspaper, and I was like, I can't do this. And years later I found and I got the I got the job. Years later I found out there was no competition. There was nobody else. As I reflect on it now, for the first time I'm realizing how often editors have lied to me.
1: We lie to get what we I want. I literally
3: have not thought about that until just now, where my editors...
1: Deadline is a lie. It's shipping tomorrow.
3: It's all been lies. Yeah, it's, it's a web of lies. But what, so what do you, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a little struck here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that was the last time Chris Jones was ever seen in the world of journalism. Um, it's like magic. What, what and we've you, gone full circle. What would you say, you know, what was he identifying that was the difference between a newspaper... Your newspaper oh. approach and a magazine approach. You
3: fall. I think with newspapers, if you're writing quickly, you fall into patterns. Not necessarily consciously. You just fall into these things to get through that number of words quickly. And so often with newspapers, you fall into a paragraph quote, paragraph quote, paragraph quote. You use a lot of quotes. And you don't do a lot of writing. And with a magazine story, there's still a ton of reporting in it. But you're writing the story more than you're just straight up reporting, and if you read a magazine story, they often don't have tons of quotes. There's usually, you know, fewer quotes in a three thousand or four thousand word magazine piece than you might find in a eight hundred word newspaper piece. So I think it was things like that. Andy said, well, he set this impossible thing where he said, um, I never want to see you write a sentence that I would have read in the newspaper, which is basically impossible. But I think what he was trying to say is you should always be thinking creatively, thinking with imagination, just thinking differently about your stories than just, i got to write 2,000 words, i got to get it out. You know, it's funny to have time. It was a weird experience to have, like, you have six weeks to write this, and I was like, I can write this in four hours. I don't know why I need six weeks. But you can't write that kind of story in four hours.
1: And did, did the, that process Feel like it came naturally to you that you you thought ah now I have the room to breathe I can do what I always wanted to do or do you do did you and do you stare at the blank page and say I don't I don't know I don't know where this starts I don't know where this ends
3: I st- I find writing really hard um, and I know there are writers who sit down and it just pours out of them I'm not one of those um, which is why I report if I take pride in anything it's my reporting and I re- but I report as hard as I do because I found it makes the writing easier. That I never want that feeling of I've got a 5,000-word story due and I've only got 2,000 words of material. For me, that's that's a terrible feeling. And I'm not a good enough writer to bluff. I, I can't fill that with poetry. Uh, you know, my writing is pretty straightforward. And um, so for me, as long as I report enough, the writing is tolerable, I guess is the word I would use. But for me, the writing is not the joy. The, The joy is the reporting, just going out there, the travel and meeting people and, you know, that teller story, like learning about magic for me was like a really interesting thing. And writing that story was a puzzle that I enjoyed in the sense that I feel good about what I did. But when I was sitting there smashing my head on the table, I wasn't enjoying it. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I I love reporting. That's, That's what I love about the process
1: there's no possible way we can cover the sort of range of stories that you have done. But part of what interests me just looking back over everything you've written is there is, there's a lot of diversity there. I mean, even if you look, so let's look at the two pieces that that were National Magazine Award winners. I mean, one of them is called Home. It's about guys that are trapped on the International Space Station trying to find their way home. The other one's called The Things That Carried Him and it's about a soldier who dies being brought back uh, and buried. And so do you, are there threads between those stories? Do you feel like those stories have commonalities, or you have a common approach to those stories, or do you is every one different because they're structured completely differently? You know, they're they're different, and that's I guess if there's a link, uh, I'm a
3: big fan of I don't even know what you like process stories, procedurals, like how things how things happen. I guess would be the simplest way. And if you look at, so with the three guys stuck in the space station, that was how did they get home? With Joey, the soldier, it was how did Joey get home? You know, with Teller, it's like, how does magic work? You know, they're all sort of answering a simple question. Um, I did one story animals this year about, excuse me, the Zanesville animal massacre where all the tigers and lions got shot. That was like, how did shit go so bad in Zanesville? That's like, and I think I like those stories that sort of explain a very specific thing: why, how did this happen, and why did it happen that way? And 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 that I would say is the link. Um, the Price Is Right story started with how did that guy? How how was that guy perfect on the Price Is Right? You know, which doesn't seem like a consequential question. It shouldn't. Who gives a shit why that guy was perfect on the Price Is Right? Uh, except that. Terry, the guy, taught me a lot about dedication and addiction and things like that. Because you can only be perfect on The Price is Right if you're that kind of person. So.
1: And what kind of, what kind of distance do you try to keep from the subjects of the subject matter?
3: I try to keep no distance. I, this is a thing I've talked about a lot and I always get in trouble for it. Um, I don't believe in objectivity. I know journalists talk about it all the time. I don't think it exists. Um, I think it's stupid to try to pretend it exists. Uh, I think if you really want to write 8,000 words about someone, you should get to know them. And if you get to know someone, you're going to have an opinion. The way after tonight, people have an opinion of us. No one's going to leave going, I have no opinion. And if if you have a story where you have no opinion, that's probably a crap story. Like, if your hook is, I am totally ambivalent about this,
1: it's tough reporting
3: that's a tough that's a tough pitch i don't think the story is very interesting go with that one you know it's like i want the guy who's going i must write about this because i love this guy so much and that teller was someone i unabashedly love is not too strong a word i love teller i think he's amazing um joey that soldier story If anyone could sit in Joey's mom's house and have her cook pot roast and cherry pie and talk about her dead son and not feel anything, I would say that person is a nut, right? You'd worry about that person. So to ask a journalist just because they're a journalist to somehow become a robot doesn't make any sense to me.
1: But then when you sit down to write it, does it matter what they're going to think about it. I mean, if you look at oh. any, either of those examples, I mean, obviously, I think the the soldier one is is simpler because you you I mean, the, these people have sort of taken you into their world and you owe them, you know, treating the subject, right? I mean, you owe any subject that. But if you look like at Teller or you profiled Roger Ebert, are those do you say I want them to like this. I want him to like this or I want him to think this is fair? What what do you, oh, you put on your mind?
3: Yeah, no. What I promised people, and I promise this when I talk to them, I mean, there's a very weird thing that you have to do as a reporter, and that's call strangers up and ask them to let you in, right? And that's a very weird... Like, with Joey, the soldier story, the first phone call I made was to Gail, his mom. No journalism school can teach you how to handle that phone call. Like, she answers, hello. So now what do you say? And... That All I can do at that moment is say, I know I'm a stranger to you. You don't know me. You probably have a terrible opinion of journalists. But I'm not one of those guys. And I promise you that I will do justice. What I say is something like, I'll do justice to this story. I will be careful with this story. And I will get this story absolutely right. And that doesn't mean they'll like it. All I promise them is that it will be 100% true. And I think that if, as long as you're true, no one can come back at you. They can't say, oh, but that's not, it's true. That happened. That's a fact. Sometimes they're not the kindest facts. Uh, Roger Ebert was initially quite upset, not so much with the story, but the picture that went with the story, because it was a very close-up picture of his face. Roger was really mad about it. and. The terrible truth is that picture is 100% accurate. That's how Roger looks. And and that's that's the deal with journalism. So I don't tell them they'll love the story. I don't tell them anything like that, but I tell them that I do care about it and that I want to be right. And I think most people accept that. And it's a lot easier when you when you believe it. So when I say that, it's not some line like I mean that. And I think hopefully people can sense that it's uh, it's very it's, uh, it's it's very weird to walk into someone's life and ask these things of them. It's a big demand for me to write a story about. Don't someone.
1: you find yourself surprised that they they agree to it?
3: I am always shocked, and that's not joking. I never know why they say yes.
1: And it's it's. What's your theory about why they say yes?
3: I have no idea. It's like a. You know, it's funny when I quit the paper. I kind of skipped this part because it's a bit. When I quit the newspaper, I quit on September 12th, 2001, uh, which if you do the math, is the day after September 11th, 2001, when I was asked to cold call victim families. And I didn't want to do it. Um, and I was already leaning out the door anyway, so I don't want to say I quit in this noble huff. I was already leaving, and that was just the final. And an editor yelled at me as I was running out the door. She said, what you're not understanding is that they'll want to talk, they'll want to tell you about the person they've lost. And I didn't believe it then, but I kind of believe it now, that if someone has lost someone or something is important to them, they want that story told. And if they're gonna tell that story, they want it told by someone they can trust. And so a big part of them saying yes, I think is that feeling that they can trust you. And it's, it's whatever, Roger called it like Roger had been asked to do stories before and he said no and he called it an inexplicable instinct To say yes to me, and I don't know why he did he told me later it's because I said I had two kids and that You know I wasn't a bad guy, you know I said my thing about and I believe I don't believe I am a bad guy So it's like it's a he just said yes, and it's just I don't know why they do I think Your job is to give them every reason to say yes And if they said they often they'll still say no I sometimes they say no and then it's no.
1: Yeah, it's always surprising when you run up against someone who just says, no, no, I don't need your publicity. I, yeah. don't, need your, I don't need your magazine. Yeah,
3: so I just had it with ESPN. I wanted to talk to the, one of the replacement referees. The first female referee in American football happened to be one of these replacement referees they just used. That was just a flat
1: out no. I was like, are you? But I actually was like, a, are you sure? She's like, yeah, I'm sure. She's probably having a tough time right now. You should try again in a month. Yeah, 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 I'll go back. So I want to ask you a little bit about just sort of like how it feels in your career. I mean, you won these National Magazine Awards, and I mean, for people who write for magazines, all right, it's, not the, it's not like the Academy Awards and all these sorts of things, but it's a, it's a recognition in our particular field, and when you wrote those stories and those, you got that recognition, did you feel like, now I'm going to go do it again? Did you feel like, now I've done everything that I wanted to do? Or did that leave you feeling like you wanted more or did that leave you feeling like uh what do I where do I go from here?
3: Yeah, no, it didn't uh this is something else I've gotten in trouble for. I don't actually I don't give a shit. Uh I wrote so I, I won the two National Magazine Awards and then I didn't get nominated for Roger Ebert. And I was bummed. And I said I wrote a blog
1: post. But this was a blog, so so let's step back a second. You had a blog uh Son of Bold Venture. I know the name of it off the top of my head because I, I read it because you interviewed writers uh, on it and it, it was a lot of interesting stuff but it seemed like it was mostly oriented towards uh, people who wanted to learn about what yeah. you did, students or young writers. It was writers. my way of
3: answering the thousand emails I get.
1: Yeah, it was sort of instructional and, and revelatory about your you know the same kind of questions I'm asking you now. Um, so, so then you decide to write this post.
3: Yeah, where I just said, you know what, I'm disappointed. I thought I didn't say that other stories were crap. I didn't say I deserved it. I was just like, yeah, I'm bummed. I wanted to get nominated. And for me, my problem is I'm a pretty black and white person. And journalism is hugely gray. And it's a very subjective. When you're saying, what's the best feature story of the year? That's a really weird. Like, how do you judge? It's nonsense. Except that we do judge it. And we do have this award. and. Those awards are my way of imposing my black and white worldview on my very gray life. So when I won those awards, I could say to myself, best fucking story of the year. They said so. <laughs> and when they said, they, they, they whoever judges stories, who those I have no idea who said so. I'm glad they did. Um... But it did nothing to make me not want to win again. And I, and I got most of the... I mean, the response to that Roger Ebert post was hugely negative, overwhelmingly negative. And a lot of the negativity was, like, you've won two, like, shut up. And I was like, what if... And not to... Uh, I can see the opening I'm giving people now anyway, but what if Kobe Bryant said, I won a championship, I'm good. Or the Montreal Canadiens, well, we've won 26 Stanley Cups... We, I don't think we need to win another you'd be like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard why
1: play the game if you're not going to try to win and it's but is it a game I mean I guess that, that seems like that's where the criticism may have come in also is is it, is it a game I mean if you read those stories that won or the Roger Ebert won I mean those are things full of empathy an incredible amount of empathy for those people and then but it doesn't seem like you wrote those to win anything
3: I didn't I didn't write them thinking this will win yeah And I don't want anyone thinking I do that. But it's nice to win. And it's not, uh, you know, I've said to people, like, if it's not okay to care about these things, then why are we having them?
1: Why does every editor in chief that wins them sort of like collect them up in a pile and put them on their desk? I mean, you can go to any magazine in New York and they've got them sitting around. It just feels
3: good to fucking win. It's like a, I don't, for me, I I just didn't understand the whole, and it's, it's, if you wanted to say, let's get rid of them, no problem. But if they exist, I want to win them. And I, just because I've won two, I know that Gary Smith has won four. I want five. <laughs> Unless Gary Smith wins five, and then I want six. And that's, that's just how I work. I don't know if it's not, I, and maybe that's a terrible, competitive, creepy thing. But journalism's competitive. Like, I get all the time where people are like, well, I'm not that competitive, so I don't know about journalism. And I say, please come into journalism, and when we're on a story together, I will step on your head, like I will win. And that's how, maybe there are lots of nice, kind people out there in journalism. I'm sure there are, and I think I'm a nice, kind person, unless you and I are going for the same
1: story. But see, if someone else is going for the same story, I'd rather just do another story. (laughs) Well, my intention is to make you go do another story. I would rather you go it's do done. another
3: story. I would like you to go do another story. I don't want us to be doing the same story. But if we are doing the same story, and if you beat me, I'm going to be mad about it. And my editor's going to be mad about it. I get paid to write six stories a year. If I get my ass handed to me constantly,
1: not the best career move. But I guess I want to get at, to what extent is this just a motivator that you use? like? It's a motivation that you use to sort of like report hard and do everything. I mean, I just, when I read the stories, I don't imagine you're sort of like, fuck those other writers. This gonna be an award winning story. I feel like I'm you're. Not like, bam, the people ever cross shop. Yeah, no, I'm not like that. No, it's, no, I'm writing, I'm trying to write the
3: story as best I can so I write the best story I can for me and for my editor and for the people, for the readers and for the subjects. But if I get the cherry on top, which is the National Magazine Award, I'm not sad about that. Because that's the alternative, right? The alternative is me saying either I don't care about them, which is kind of a Nancy thing to say. I mean, it's totally denigrating. Pretending that you don't care. It's li- First of all, I'd be lying. Second of all, that's really ignorant to everyone who does win them. That's like me saying, well, I know you won that, but it doesn't matter. That's just stupid. I mean, that's a dick thing to say. And then it's like they exist. I didn't invent them, but if they want to give me one, shit, dude, I get I get a weekend in New York in a nice hotel with my wife. I get a bonus, a financial bonus. I get a trophy. I get a nice meal. Why the hell wouldn't I want that? I did not understand this one bit. I still don't get why people are so pissed.
1: I think it was just, I don't know either. That's, I think it was revealing something that, people a lot of people think but they don't want to think i mean they just announced the macarthur genius grant awards i mean how many people when they read that were sort of like "Mm," like they wished it was them they wish that they had got oh i wouldn't care about that i wouldn't want
3: (laughs) macarthur i wouldn't want a hundred thousand dollars for five years strings no strings i wouldn't want to be called a genius no i just do this for my art that's wanky bullshit it's you you Prizes exist because people want to win them and it doesn't if you don't
1: want to win them, great. I do. But so I feel like this initiated, this sort of happened right in the time when you also came on Twitter. <laughs> and Let's uh, talk about
3: mistakes. Ha- <laughs> mistakes have been made.
1: And sort of almost like suddenly you, I mean, in the world of Twitter and social media, like a person, like I'd been reading your stories for years. I had read those national magazine Winning stories and said, oh my god, that's amazing. I wish I'd written that and And then suddenly you're like a real person No, 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 (laughs) but I think there are people that who is this dick that now? Came to know you through either that post or through Twitter and then right on the heels of that You or not quite on the heels, but more recently you wrote a piece for the sex issue of Esquire, which also kind of drew the same kind of attention like if you google Chris Jones Esquire you may or may not be aware like that's the first story and the second one is uh, a story from Gawker about that story
3: yes and so like super proud that my first hit is a 300 word sex
1: piece did you expect that no god no (laughs) No. you didn't write that to to kind of like draw out the
3: (sighs) people okay for those of you I wrote a thing it was assigned I was being a good soldier. I was assigned as part of a much larger sex package.
1: Uh,
3: did I use the word? Uh, Everybody knows about sex packages. Okay. Do you? you don't have to explain that. I, this is going exactly the way I dreamed it would. Uh, I wrote a thing about how not all women are great in bed. Well, you cannot say that. <laughs> People get very upset. And what's very strange about it is women don't get upset. Men get furious. (laughs) Because they're defending the women who they hope will lay them for defending their honor to me on Twitter. And I'm hoping some guy got totally rocked because he defended some woman's honor to me. But that's another thing where I was bewildered. Now, Esquire pack like, when they put it online, they put it by itself. They put it with a really creepy picture of like a guy like a shadow on a door and a woman smoking in bed. I didn't I was like what? it didn't help. I was like that's that's kind of rapey, you know, it looked bad. And and but the if you read the story, it started out with me saying I'm not awesome in bed. That's how it starts. It starts with me going, I can't remember, I was like basically mediocre. Uh, but Women are mediocre too. Sometimes, the alternative to this theory is that every woman is awesome in bed.
1: D- I think that's true. I, you think uh, that's true? That say whatever you want, but
3: <laughs> Evan has only been with one woman, and she was the best woman in the history of. No, it's just it's a stupid argument. It's like it's every guy the same. And I've said I've had many women come up to me and go, I really hated that thing you wrote. And I said, well, if you were writing the alternative, not every man is great in bed. You would write about penis size, premature ejaculation, sweatiness, what? Socks? (laughs) Socks? You would write about socks? Hey, baby. Uh, 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 (laughs) I thought you said sauce. I was like, what's going on in Romania?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A lot of guys carry around sauce. Sauce.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The sex condiment selection is ready. and no one would give a shit. You would write that, and everyone would be like, oh, yeah, way to go, girl. <laughs> Guys have small dicks, uh, and it wouldn't be a big deal. But a guy writes it, and it turns into this really weird thing.
1: Yeah, so now, but so then, suddenly, your uh, all this ink, virtual ink, is spilled, whether it's Twitter or uh, wherever else. I mean, do you like mixing it up with those people? Or do you wish that you, because I'll just step back a second. like. You're not. You don't put yourself forward in a lot of the the long pieces that you write. Like you're not a no. big first person. I don't. You know, I don't want character in all these stories. I do this. I do that. So suddenly you're sort of like the center of attention of this mini storm. I mean, who knows how many people outside of uh, the media ever knew about it? But you know, is that something you all want to go? You want it all to go away?
3: Oh, I don't enjoy that at all. No, it's not fun for me. Uh-huh. I don't like that when you Google me. That's the first twenty things that come up. I especially don't like the Gawker headline, which is something like "Esquire writer to wife, fuck me better." I don't like that very much. That, I have it up actually.
1: I'll make sure. Is it something that's like correct. that? Yeah. Let's just fact check that. It was a uh, Esquire writer to wife. Please start fucking better. Is actually <laughs> it's close.
3: That story had nothing to do with my wife. In fact, when I got assigned that story, I told my wife, and she said, "That's fine, but if you write about me, I will cut your nuts off." <laughs> So it's, in fact, the exact opposite of what the Gawker guy wrote. Um, So, anyway, no, I don't relish that. I don't like that it's all those top hits. I would rather people knew me for Ebert or Joey or The Space Story or Teller or whatever. But one truth about journalism is you never know what's going to catch. When I wrote that, I wrote that thing. I wouldn't have dreamed it would have done anything. It drove traffic for weeks. And it's like... Again, it's one of those things that mystifies me a little bit. I still don't understand why it hit. And sometimes you write a story, you work really hard on it, and you think, oh, this is going to go. And it's crickets. I wrote a story called The End of Mystery about accident investigators, plane crash investigators, which I thought was super interesting, not because of the story I wrote, just because it's inherently fascinating. Nobody read that story. Nobody talks about it. Nobody's ever asked me about it. It, that story does not exist anymore. And I worked just as hard on that story as any other. And then other stories, cash. Teller caught. That Price is Right story caught like crazy. And it just, I wouldn't have guessed that it would have done that. And that sex story, I wouldn't have guessed in a million years it would have done what it have done. But I guess in hindsight, if I thought about it, maybe I'd seem like poking the bears a little bit, but not that women are bears, poking the... <laughs>
1: oh, you're fucked now. Oh, shit. Esquire writer Chris Jones, I'm never coming to bears, and he wants to poke them. Um, so there's a couple more things I want to ask you about. One of them is uh, this is where the hard questions come, right yeah, at the end. This is where, Get them at the end. Yeah, it's like, oh, I stopped recording.
3: One <laughs> <laughs> more question. One more question. Um,
1: oh, by the way, before you leave, actually, it is kind of a hard question, maybe, because um, Christian and I were talking about at dinner that he remembered that there was an essay that you wrote for Esquire, which is not online as far as we can tell. That it's some. You were writing about how difficult it was. I don't know because I haven't read it. I couldn't find it. Uh, at some point in your writing career, that you were you considered suicide. And I've kind of I don't. That's the sketchiest part that we could. I mean, that's all we could remember. So yeah. it's probably more complex than that. And I'm sort of curious if you want to talk about it or yeah, no, we if can talk about not it online intentionally. It's also um, something interesting uh,
3: it's not on. I think I've never talked to Esquire about this. It's not online. I think probably intentionally, um, because it's pretty. It <laughs> sounds stupid to say it's pretty personal. Don't know why I wrote it for a million people. Um, yeah, I definitely have had issues like mental issues, and I think, I think it's always hard to talk about because I don't want young writers to think that you're supposed to be like that. And I think, I'm reading the biography of David Foster Wallace right now. The D.T. Max, The D.T. Max book. And I fear so much that young writers are going to read something like that and think, for me to be a great writer, I have to be mental. I have to be a head case. And it's not true. You can be a great writer and be totally, totally sane. Um, I think sometimes people romance things like depression or romance things like Um, broken hearts and it's once you've been there there's nothing romantic about it It it's awful Um, like I wouldn't wish that on anybody and for me it was I was a very you could not rock me up or down for the first probably 30 years of my life and then I just suddenly started swinging and it's like how for me it's like how you know if you're looking at your soup, you're walking with your soup and if you look at it, you start to it starts to slosh a little. And once it starts sloshing, you you can't stop and then you, and it just if you look at it, you spill more. For me once it started, it just was really hard to crack. And I think if you have ever gone through depression, the first time you do, you don't know what it is and you don't know that your life is ever going to feel different. You suddenly get into this spot where you're like I can't see how my life will ever get better. And for me, there was two instances where, you know, I thought seriously about uh, killing myself. And I, I think that the other thing is we put all nice words into it, we, you know, passing away or leaving us or, you know, suicide is killing yourself. It's it's choosing death over life. Um, and it's it's nothing fun or romantic or beautiful or poetic it's it's shit and it's it's um i wrote that story because i hope that people who were in that same spot especially people who were in that first skid of depression would read it and think okay maybe there's a when i can i can get out of this maybe there's a way i can get out and you know i i got out eventually you know i've had more than one spell and Right now, I'm as good as I've been in 10 years, probably as happy as I've been in 10 do years. Do you
1: think that your, the work that you were doing contributed to it? I mean, work that you were either working on dark subjects or this, the process of being by yourself or any of those things? I think, yeah, I think I'd
3: be lying to say it didn't. I mean, I think you do spend a lot of time alone when you're a writer. You spend a lot of time in your own head. Uh, I am very thin-skinned. Um, I, I take things personally. Um, I do tend to be drawn, even before all this stuff, I was drawn to darker subjects. Um, Certainly, I I had a a bad, a really bad spell after I finished Joey's story, the story about the soldier. Um, I think it was a combination of sort of things I'd seen and spending that much time in sort of sadness. And also feeling a bit lost afterwards. Like for eight or nine months, that was my... That was my direction, and uh, I knew what I was doing each day and it was uh, and I had a big goal there and then once so once it was done, it, it kind of felt like I was missing something a little bit um, but I think it was other things too i mean I think it's I legitimately believe that depression is chemicals and stuff electricity or whatever's going wrong in your brain and and um but life circumstances can kind of push you a bit um, sure so it was um yeah it, it i mean it sucks it sucks ass there's no way there's no other way to it's I wouldn't wish it on anybody and I hope that if someone's listening and going through it that they know you know like it does release like you do come out of it and I think often it's funny I've been thinking about it lately actually because um because I'm in such a good spot that i th- like if I had done something permanent back then and I would have missed all this um you know how I wouldn't be around to regret it, but how much I would regret it. See, I think sense. that
1: to me that casts the whole uh, "I wanted to win another award" thing in a completely different light. I mean, that's the missing piece of that's what's in that was what was in that post. It's sort of like you're trying to find ways to drive yourself forward when it's often a struggle, and one of those things may be external rewards. And you know, I think that. I think if, if people, if everyone knew that who wrote those things about how horrible it was that you said you wanted to win an award, I think it would... Yeah, but I don't, at the same
3: time, way. I don't want to use it as like a, I don't want people to treat me different.
1: No, no, no. It's and that was,
3: that was actually my biggest fear about writing that story was people, well, first of all, I was really worried about people like my mom and dad reading it. Um, you know, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Uh, but the other thing I was really worried about was that people would suddenly treat me like I was fragile. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. That would be worse for me if so, all of a sudden people are saying nice things to me when they didn't believe it or but something. That's like what
1: that. everyone with depression worries about. Why they don't tell anyone about it? For that's one oh, of the reasons why they don't. But
3: I understand perfectly why you don't <laughs> say anything. Both those reasons. You don't want to burden anybody else, and you don't want people to think you're a nut. And it's 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 not, not. Again, that's why I hate that idea of some kid listening to Bauhaus and enjoyed a vision and got the black hoodie up going, oh, I'm so sad. And it's like, it's not pretend. Like, it's not like this make-believe thing. Like, it is it is a terrible blackness. I mean, it is awful. And it's just, and I always think about the people who actually, and I'm really sorry if anyone here knows someone who did this, but I always think about the people who have committed suicide where they were in that spot because... I think about where I was and how shitty I felt, and I still didn't do it. Like some instinct in me said, don't do that. But those people did it. That's how bad they felt. And it's it's. And I think we have this terrible way of viewing it as like this cowardly act, like this selfish, mean thing. The people who are doing it are doing it because they think they're relieving others of, a, of having to live with them. And they're doing it because they think the world would be better off without them. And they're not thinking about it in some rational Oh I'm going to show them it's it has nothing to do with that it's 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 you're ridding the world of your mis- like of your sorry ass like that's how it is, and it's just I hate the idea that it's cowardly It is fucking massively brave to be able to override the most base natural instinct of a human you're when like my six year old I remember like a dog barking and chasing after him, and he bolted. And it's like his self-preservation is in you, it's in you, and it's just to override that is like an incredible thing. And it's just, it's not cowardly and it's not selfish. And people need to stop talking about it like that because it's not fucking helping anybody.
1: All right, so let's let's, uh, let's, let's end a on a down. Happy, note. Let's end on a happier note. Can you can you talk about something that you're working on right now?
3: I don't have anything I'm working on right now.
1: Um, that's on an up note. No, that's another down note, really. So you've also, I mean, you've also dipped into in here. into writing books. Um, actually, I'm gonna get another one of those beers. Yeah. You've dipped into writing books and blue. Let me uh, uh, go with blue this time. Um, one, uh, you wrote a book about boxing. It sold 912 copies. Seriously.
3: Sincerely, yeah. That's exactly how many. That's. It was you know. not worth it. Except it I think it might have gotten Well, I think it might have got me my job at Esquire cuz in addition to making Andy read my newspaper stories in front of me I gave him a book. So it may have been the thing that stuck on his desk. Was minute. that
1: 912, copy 912 or copy 913? Do you count that against oh, the sales? I, no,
3: I don't count that as a sales. I have I would say approximately 15,000 copies of
1: that book sitting in my attic. <laughs> write Chris Jones for a copy copy you know, <laughs> please send please go free my house is like tilting because i have a <laughs> <laughs> um and then you wrote a book out of home the yeah. story for esquire so what was that experience like um,
3: <laughs> writing a book is really hard i, I imagine you've written 40,000 words that's quite a lot and you're not halfway done that's a terrible dark moment when you're sitting in your attic and you just go, oh, holy crap, I've got to do that again. <laughs> plus 20,000 more words. Plus all the editing. It's a uh, labor. So one of the things I've learned is if you don't love the idea you're doing, it's not a
1: book. Did you get bored with it?
3: No. I like I liked that subject. It was, it was, I didn't pitch it as a book. It kind of, my agent set up a deal without asking me and it kind of happened. Um, but It's just, it's really hard.
1: And do you ever think about, I mean, do you plan to keep doing this as you're doing it now? I mean, you got three different gigs going. Does that feel like uh, this is stable, this this pays my bills? Or do you feel like, do you look at other things like maybe I should write a screenplay, maybe, I mean, does this feel like a career going forward or something you're always looking, all right, what's next? How do I keep Uh, this going?
3: That's a really hard question. Um I think about things like books. I have a book contract to write another book. It's like 4 years old. I'm way overdue. I should do that. I have dabbled in sort of screenplays. Hollywood is a Hollywood is like books but a thousand times worse because it's super alluring. You write a movie that gets made and you get a million dollars and you have a movie and that's awesome. But Hollywood is a filled with terrible people who are not nice to writers, and it's just it's, you're sort of making a deal for your soul there. And yet, it's so tempting. I still try. Um, I don't know what the answer is. For me, it's like if I ever start feeling bored or I don't want to do that, then that's when I'll do something else. And for me, it would be I would do something. I would do something totally different. I would be a carpenter or something. I wouldn't. I would. I would switch. Could you do that? Could you stop going out and talking to strangers? Not right now. I couldn't. But if there was a time when I felt like I didn't want to get on the plane, then then I would stop.
1: Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. The stories mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes on our website uh, thanks to Lauren Kirchner, who's the editor of the Longform Podcast. And special thanks to Dicato Revista and Christy Lupsa, who uh, arranged the live taping of this particular show. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist, and you can check out our latest story called Stowaway. It's a nonfiction comic by Joshua Newfeld and Tori Marlin. It's on our website at atavist.com.